Overdraft fees are just the worst. Get up to 200 in fee-free overdraft with the Chime checking account. Sign up today at Chime.com slash Goals24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. A listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, October 6. I'm Tom Tilley, and you've probably heard of the Doherty modelling. It's been mentioned in the news a lot. The pollies are talking about it all the time because it's the basis for our pathway out of lockdown. It's where the magic 70 and 80% vaccination targets come from. In this episode of The Briefing, we're going to speak to its namesake, Nobel Prize winner, Professor Peter Doherty. When smallpox vaccination sort of came in, In the late 19th century, people were drawing cartoons with people with horns coming out their head or cow ears because they'd taken the vaccine. So anti-vaccination propaganda is not new, but of course now it gets around the internet with remarkable speed. The 80-year-old scientist has some incredible insights. We'll ask him what it's been like taking on the uh, anti-vaxxers on Twitter um, first, we'll get into the headlines with Antoinette Latouf. You're looking forward to that interview with Peter Doherty. He's pretty cool, isn't he? Oh, I love watching him on Twitter, but I think he has the patience of an angel and a saint. <laughs> I'll ask him all about that in a moment. All right, let's get into today's headlines. There's been a Save Australia rally, but interestingly, held in America. The protest in New York is about Australia's lockdowns and vaccine mandates. We support Australia! It was a wild scene. Um, Hundreds of American protesters marching to the Australian consulate in the Big Apple, waving Australian and American flags and giving speeches. We stand in absolute solidarity with the people of Australia. So Australia's ongoing lockdowns have gathered significant attention among America's conservative media commentators, and they've condemned the government's response to anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne which this week has become the most lockdown city in the world throughout the pandemic. And Tom, what's really interesting is last night I was having a a meeting for a work thing and on the call was someone from Singapore, someone from Hawaii, Mm. uh, someone from New York and uh, someone from London. And the thing they all wanted to talk about was the protests in Melbourne. They'd all been, you know, absolutely consumed by those Mm. images. They kind of pitied Australia because they felt like we were where they were a year ago. Yeah, I think it looks like 2020 here in Australia Mm. to the rest of the world where we're still having all the same arguments and tensions and um, lived experiences they went through last year. It's it's kind of getting embarrassing, to be honest. Yeah, I know. And as I guess Australia's not usually, you know, we see some of those wild scenes and we're accustomed to them coming from different parts of the world, mm. probably the United States. So it was interesting to see how that script has been flipped. But, you know, I also reiterated it was only a minority of people in Melbourne that the vast majority are staying at home and not on the streets protesting. Yeah, and I guess... The funny thing is last year we looked like the winners of COVID. This year we look like the losers. Mm -hmm. But ultimately we've had way less deaths. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of freedom, the new New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, says he'll stick to the plan to start reopening the state from Monday. And that's despite speculation he'd bring it forward. My intention at this stage is that that day will remain on uh, Monday for next week, but um, there are a number of issues that need to be looked at. Perrottet, the new Premier, was sworn in uh, yesterday, the youngest ever, 39 years old, after winning the party room vote. Um, New South Wales is expected to hit the 70% double vax target tomorrow or Friday, um, which then on Monday 
will end over three months of lockdown. And I think what's really interesting here, Tom, is that we're so desperate um, here in New South Wales to get out of lockdown that Mm. there was so much excitement about this possible reopening a day earlier. He was going to uncancel the weekend. That was the line. Yeah, that that was it. And and we were just like (laughs) jumping for joy and everyone was was jumping at this, you know, it was... Three days. It's hilarious. But that's where we're at, folks. And there's a fight brewing over hospital funding. The Queensland government has said they can't open their borders unless the federal government gives them more hospital funding to handle the influx of COVID-related patients. The Australian is reporting that hospitals in Cairns, Townsville, Mackay and Mount Isa have issued code yellow alerts. Um, And that means that their wards are approaching 100% capacity already. With zero COVID cases, which is interesting. Um, Scott Morrison's hit back at this call from Queensland, calling it ransom. To go down this point and say, well, you know, I'm going to hold the federal government to ransom and to seek to extort from their money uh, on the basis of COVID, I'm not going to respond to shakedown politics in a pandemic. So that was Prime Minister Scott Morrison on Channel 9 there yesterday. Queensland says it feels a little bit targeted given in the past uh, several months, all states and territories have asked for an increase in hospital funding. And often do. Uh, yes, and a pandemic or no pandemic, our hospitals are often, you know, incredibly under-resourced. But tying it to reopening, yes. I can see that looks a little bit tricky. Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk had dangled the carrot saying, if Queensland reaches that 80% vaccination, we may reopen, but hey, give us a bit more money and we'll do it. So, mm. you know, I absolutely see where both parties are coming from. You know, I do think a lot of Australians would just appreciate less of those kind of political bipartisan jabs and more clarity as to when people can start to move freely around the country, be mm. reunited with loved ones and enjoy the summer holidays. A senior Facebook employee turned whistleblower has asked US politicians to better regulate the tech giant, warning it's hurting children and democracy. I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division and weaken our democracy. That's former Facebook product manager Frances Haugen. She spent four hours testifying before a US Senate internet safety hearing. Yeah, she says Facebook won't improve its platform without the government stepping in. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Congressional action is needed. They won't solve this crisis without your help. What's interesting about this is not necessarily that it's telling us anything that we don't know. It's that the tech giant has put this admission in writing. And so there are many things that we know aren't good for us, but not often the perpetrators say it themselves that they know and they're not necessarily doing much about it, particularly in this COVID environment where algorithms and misinformation is rife and where the mental health of people, especially young children, um, is especially of concern, is of particular concern. Yeah, so I, I guess that's what makes this a little bit interesting, but I'd be interested to see if this changes anything and if laws are tightened around the tech giant. Yeah, well, these are ongoing tensions that we've been, you know, watching kind of play out for years. And this desire from lawmakers to really sort of change the social media giants doesn't seem to have achieved much yet. And I guess it's just another blow um, because the testimony comes just one day after Facebook suffered a six-hour worldwide outage. That's believed to have cost the company billions of dollars. And it also deprived me, Tom, yesterday of the ability to post what I had for breakfast. And I just can't, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine how many, how many people were just sitting there going, God, I can't start my day. I've not seen all of those, you know, narcissistic breakfast posts. Well, maybe that's that's the way they should regulate Facebook. We should just get a six-hour blackout every now and again and we'll, we'd all be a lot healthier. Antoinette, we'll catch you later. Um, we're about to speak to a wonderful man called Peter Doherty. 
All right, it's time for our interview with Professor Peter Doherty. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. At the start of last year, you were relaxing in your holiday house, working on a book, uh, maybe loosely thinking about retirement out on the horizon. You were about to fly to Italy. You quickly realised you had to cancel that flight and then COVID gripped the world. Now, as someone who's studied immunology and diseases for 50 years, what have you experienced and learned in the last 18 months? I've learned an enormous amount because I've been interacting very closely with colleagues that I knew well, but I never really looked inside their world. And we've been having conferences two, three times a week talking about all the problems that people are doing different things, trying to get the tests out there, doing the epidemiology, working in the hospital. I kind of knew what these guys did, but I didn't really know. And when you really hear what they're struggling with and what they're trying to achieve, you understand that enormous effort that goes in behind the scenes with something like this, Mm. with great professionals that you know as friends, but you don't live their world. So this pandemic has blown SARS, MERS, swine flu completely out of the water, which means the best comparison has been the Spanish flu over 100 years ago. Given the massive advancements in medicine, technology and science, do you think we've handled this pandemic quite well compared to the Spanish flu, or has it been disappointing? Well, at many levels, it's been extraordinary because when the Spanish flu hit back in 1918-19, we didn't even isolate an influenza, any influenza virus until 1933, okay? So this virus... It was detected in December 2019, and by January the 15th, the sequence of the virus was published all around the world. If you'd said that to someone in 1918, they wouldn't even know what you're talking about (laughs) because they had no understanding of any of that. And then we had a vaccine within a year, um, less than a year. So basically, Spanish flu, they made a vaccine, but they made a vaccine against the wrong thing. They made a vaccine against the bacterial infection that killed a lot of people with the flu. You know, we've had broad-spectrum antibiotics for years Most people now can't remember living without them. So totally different world. And science just has ramped up in speed and efficacy so fast. But where it's been tremendously instructive for all of us, really, is on the social and economic front and understanding how that works in a society like ours. Obviously, we've seen that science move, as you say, at such a rapid pace. But that has also created this angst in some parts of the community, people that aren't sure about the treatments or aren't sure about getting the vaccine. Do you think that is driven by a fear of the unknown? What do you think is driving those, it's not everybody, but that small section of our community that are sceptical of science? Yes, science scepticism. People don't necessarily understand and they don't like being talked down to. And a lot of experts come across as talking down. It's not that they're necessarily doing that, but many of them are academics who are used to teaching in universities and they're kind of teachy-preachy. The other thing, of course, we contend with is a small dedicated group of people who are, are totally against vaccination. When smallpox vaccination sort of came in, particularly in America in the late 19th century, people were drawing cartoons with people with horns coming out their head or cow ears because they'd taken the vaccine. So anti-vaccination propaganda is not new, but of course now it gets around the internet with remarkable speed. And some of it can be very compelling to people who don't really have much understanding of what happens in an infection. Yeah, and I've noticed, Peter, you've actually been on Twitter trying to sort of I guess, lend your 
credibility and expertise and communication skills to sort of helping fight this information war. And I've got to say, when you, when you first sort of made this declaration that you're going to take people's questions, I was a bit worried because I've grown up with the internet. I know how feral it is. And I thought, does Professor Peter Doherty really understand how messy this can get? And then I've seen over the months, you do seem to have faced a bit of frustration. How's this been going for you? Well, it's been an enormously steep learning curve too. <laughs> and, and, you know, here I am 80, 80 years old and I'm trying to behave like a 20-year-old on the internet. And I'm only doing Twitter because that's just too much to do anymore. I'm engaged a lot with people, I think, who are confused, who don't really quite understand. And I hope I've shifted some people's thinking. But of course, I have had a lot of input from people who are totally committed to the ideas that the vaccines kill hundreds of people. They look at adverse incidents reports. You know, if you vaccinate a million people, some people are going to die over the next couple of months after you've vaccinated. Some are going to get sick. There are adverse incidents reports that simply report that someone's been vaccinated and this has happened. So they take those as the vaccine is causing the problem. And of course, you have to investigate all those and find out if there's really a link. So there's that sort of stuff that goes out. I, I tried engaging with a number of these people for a while. And then as my Twitter followers went up. They're now, now over 101,000, which is extraordinary. I realised I was disseminating their misinformation by responding to them. Oh. So now I just block them. Oh, God. Another thing we've had to contend with during the pandemic is also the politics of this. There's a lot of New South Wales versus Victoria versus the other states that have locked down even harder now. So how do you think, you know, looking at it broadly, Australia has actually responded and should we perhaps not be looking at it on a state basis and looking at how we've done on a global scale? I had really been worried about how Australia would handle something like this because, you know, all our health systems are state-based, as you, you know, though we've got very good oversight committees and national committees, which, again, I didn't know much about. I'd uh, never served in that area. I'd been in the United States at the time I was doing that sort of committee service and working there and uh, worked a lot for the American National Institutes of Health and so forth. But basically, it's worked remarkably well, I think, for a state-based federated system. And basically, politically, it's really worked pretty well. Of course, you can't stop politicians playing politics and sniping at each other from time to time or trying to win the next election, you know, from the time an Australian government's elected now. It's trying to win the next election. So that's a real problem. We've learned a lot. We've learned that the Commonwealth really isn't very good at delivering services, for instance, that the states do a lot better job. And, and we've seen what are, in effect, different experiments in different states. So we'll see how it plays out in the end. I'm hoping that after this is over, some very serious people are going to sit down and they're going to analyse what happened across the planet from the point of view of the sociology, the psychology, the economics, as well as the science. That's part of it. And really try and get some less back from what different states and what different countries did in this and what worked best. So the public have kept hearing the phrase the Doherty modelling and <laughs> you are Peter Doherty. So this modelling is based on your name. It comes from your institute commissioned by the federal government to give them a sense of how to get out of lockdown based on our vaccination rates. I wonder as we sort of go through this phase where we start opening up and accepting more more risk. Does it keep you up at night? Do you lie there worrying that this could all go wrong and the modelling's in your name? 
Look, honestly, I've lived my, my life doing experimental science and I've lived on the, uh, on the basic rule uh, that uh, it's called Murphy's Law. Basically, anything that can go wrong will go wrong because that's my reality. That's, <laughs> that's the life I've lived. So I think models are very useful. They're thought experiments. They're put together by very, very smart people, people who are much smarter than I am or much more mathematical than I am. The Doherty modelling is led by Jody McVernon. It involves five other universities. And then the initial Doherty model leads up on our website. And then they've been doing lots more. They're doing stuff for National Cabinet all the time as well as for other countries and other places as well. They're top-class people. At the best, a model is a thought experiment. It's a guideline, not mm. a tramline. And basically, uh, it's up to the politicians to make the decisions. Scientists and doctors and so forth don't make policy decisions. They advise, they provide input. They have to be made by politicians. But they're and, doing it in your and name. And I think does the that, politics does... of this is going to be fascinating to watch. <laughs> I mean, how are we going to open up Australia when New South Wales and Victoria have got large numbers of cases and Western Australia and South Australia, Tasmania, Queensland don't have any? I mean, I, I, I find this is going to be fascinating to see and I really don't. I'm very glad I'm not a politician right now. You mentioned it before, life after COVID, and it's good to hear that you think that we might get back to something different to what we've been living for the past two years. But realistically, will we get back to a situation like we were in in 2019 and prior to that? Or has life been forever changed? I think we'll get back to a new normal. It, it won't be quite the same. People like me who are older and double vaccinated are still at some risk. And of course, some of the people who die, the people who die are double vaccinated. You know, 5% of people in the hospitals are vaccinated with COVID. They're generally frail elderly or they're people with other real underlying health problems. So, so those, those people, we're still at risk a bit. I'd like to see us get boosters when there's enough vaccine, but there's plenty of other priority for the vaccine at the moment. But yes, I think we'll be in very different territory, uh, certainly by middle of next year and late next year. We'll be living, I think, relatively normally. The whole aim of this is really to make it like the flu. It's not, not to stop people catching the infection, it's to stop people getting sick. And most people who've been vaccinated, if they do catch the infection, they may have some mild illness. Some don't feel too good for a while, but most don't go to hospital. And that's, that's what we need to be watching now, is not case numbers, but hospitalizations. That was Professor Peter Doherty, patron of the Doherty Institute, and he's just published a book if you want to check it out. It's called An Insider's Plague Year. It's been funny watching him face off with the trolls on Twitter, Annika, a man of his intellect and experience, and it kind of, I guess, reflects this miscommunication between the sort of language of scientists and the broader community sometimes. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the fights we see with climate change, I guess, as a society, we want certainty. And when you hear our politicians and a lot of people in the media speak, they do speak with such certainty. But that's not the language of science. It's forever changing. It's always being challenged. And that sits pretty uncomfortably with a lot of people, especially when we're in such an uncertain time. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a really fascinating interview with the actor and writer, Brendan Cow. Listener.